Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Censored the podcast where I pick out the dirty bits of books so you can skip straight to the sex. I'm Aoife Vrtnach, a historian hoping to be corrupted by banned books. I've read 17 so far and I'm still not morally depraved. I must be doing it wrong. I'm on Twitter, at CensoredPod, if you want to say hi, and I'd love if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts. This episode features the podcast's first horror novel, The Werewolf of Paris. Published in 1933, it was written by Guy Endor, who worked in the Hollywood film industry. By 1934, it had been placed on the Irish censor's blacklist of banned books. Until 1968, it was illegal to sell or distribute copies of The Werewolf of Paris in Ireland. As to refreshments for this one, you may not want to eat while reading it because there is a lot of raw human flesh being chewed. Don't drink anything red in colour unless you enjoy amplifying the author's beliefs that a blood-sucking, flesh-tearing beast lurks within us all. I'm going with tea this time because I need a calming, soothing, consoling drink to get me through this tale of rape, violence, incest and murder. The book opens with scenes of debauchery in 20th century Paris, but when the narrator acquires an old document, he takes us on a historical journey into Paris of the 19th century. The document purports to be the defence of a French soldier, Bertrand Cahier, who was tried at court-martial. It was written by his uncle, Aymar, and explains his nephew's birth and life. This format reminded me a bit of Dracula where the story is told in letters, newspaper reports and diary entries. It's a very effective technique for catching glimpses of horror out of the corner of your eye. It's just great for suspense. Endor's version of this narrative structure is suspenseful enough at the beginning. Most interestingly, it doesn't reveal what a werewolf is until about halfway through the book. But the book contained bannable content long before Endor got to the werewolf part. The unnamed narrator, who's American, is partying with a woman who lets the famously permissive Parisian atmosphere go to her head. 
After a night of theatre and champagne, this happens in chapter one. Then I noticed that Eliane was singing at the top of her voice. I'm hot, she said, and quickly loosening her dress, she slipped out of it and began to pirouette in her silken panties and brassiere. The proprietor came running out and began to upbraid her and all of us as sale américain. But Eliane could not be stopped so easily. She cast herself into the arms of a strange man and said, Take me, I'm yours. I want to belong to you, to you only. He put his arms around her and led her over to his table, where she was at once at home on his lap, her arms slung tightly around his neck and their mouths as if glued together. Obviously, the Irish censors couldn't be having this sort of thing. Reading about cavorting half-naked in Paris was definitely out of the question. But if the censors had continued to read beyond this brief, salacious moment of misbehaviour, their eyes would have been out on stalks. Once Endor introduced the horror story, he really went for it. After cleverly building tension with an ancient feud that may have reduced a human prisoner to a howling dog, Endor skips forward some centuries to Paris of the 1860s. The first major development in the werewolf narrative begins with a rape by a Catholic priest of an innocent young country serving girl. It should go without saying that a story with a criminal priest was entirely unacceptable to the censors. The young girl falls pregnant and then begins to behave entirely uncharacteristically. From a humble, shy country girl, she is transformed into a woman of voracious and uncontrollable sexual appetites. Her employer locks her up to prevent her from getting up on anything with a cock. She finally goes into labour on Christmas Day and the baby draws his first breath precisely as the Sanctus bell rings during Catholic Mass. This bell is rung during the consecration of the bread and wine and is part of the ritual of transubstantiation. The babe's birth on Christmas Day, the birthday of Christ, and at the very moment of consecration, is definitely an evil omen. But all seems to be fine. The baby is normal, apart from suspiciously hairy hands, and the mother stops being a sex maniac. Unfortunately, Endor does not ratchet up the tension much after this, but he leaves us to wait until the child is much older and living in the country. I'm skipping lots of the plot because it's quite boring. When farm animals start to vanish, a wolf is suspected, but Amar believes it might be the child. This part is quite good, where the disbelieving uncle struggles with his suspicions. Eventually, he starts locking the child up at night and the mysterious animal killings stop. Now I'm going to fast forward again because there's lots of padding that we don't need to talk about. His doting mother goes to free him so Bertrand can escape to Paris, but then it all gets weird. And this is from chapter 9. She had sat down on the bed beside him, had lifted him up and held him embraced against her bosom and he too put his arms around her and hugged her tightly. He was trying desperately to fight off the fog of his dream, but it was in his faculties enmeshed as if in a mist of spider webs. He was holding Therese, and she was taunting him to take off her shift. Darling baby, why, Bertrand, what are you doing? 
Stop it, Bertrand, she whispered as loud as she dared. Bertrand, I tell you. She struggled against his youthful, muscular body. Then she ceased and made no further resistance. A strange glow of satisfaction emanated from her sacrifice and caused her features to relax into an ecstatic smile. When Bertrand awoke several hours later, he noted with dismay his mother lying naked beside him, her limbs flung apart in complete relaxation. Right, so he raped his own mother, but she enjoyed it? Seriously freaky stuff. The censors must have had apoplexy. So he runs away to Paris, killing and eating his best friend along the way, as you do, then hides in the great city. He joins the National Guard and falls in love with Sophie, a daughter of a rich nobleman. They begin a relationship after she discovers her deep desire for pain. And this is from chapter 12. Such a bliss flowed through her from the feel of his arms about her, from his body pressed close to hers, that her head grew dizzy, her breath came and went. Her body tensed and then seemed about to dissolve in liquid. About to dissolve, but not quite. If only he would press harder, if only he would crush her, tear her, mutilate her. Hold me, hold me tighter still, she panted. And still she was on that point of dissolving and could not dissolve. In desperation she cried out, Hurt me, Bertrand, hurt me. Then she felt his arms closing around her like a vice, and within this circle of pain she experienced a strange exultation, as if a bird within her had been released and was filling her ears with a wild singing. And it was as if all her body dissolved away. She breathed heavily. Luckily for Sophie, persuading a werewolf to hurt you wasn't that difficult. I'm guessing dissolving is a reference to orgasm, but it's a little oblique. By chapter 15, they are living together and his werewolf nature is under control. His animalistic tendencies have been controlled by love, yes, but also, as chapter 15 shows, by something much more fundamental. They kissed. He nipped her ear playfully. They held each other tightly embraced. Please, he murmured, and was annoyed at himself for asking. Why had he done that? If you must, she said, resigned. It's on the table. Angered at himself and at her for acquiescing, but incapable at this point of restraining himself, he rose and lit a candle. The sharp blade of the knife flashed orange. He uncovered her. There was scarcely a portion of her body that had not one or more cuts on it. The older ones had healed to scars that traversed her dark skin with lines that were visibly lighter than the surrounding area. The newer ones were angry welts of red or hard ridges of scab. In the candlelight the latter were like old jewellery or polished tortoise shell. Suppressing a moment's hesitation, he bent over her body. The blood welled up, ruby red. He put his mouth to it at once and drank greedily. His lips made ugly sucking noises as he strove to extract all the blood he could. Her fingers played with his hair, meanwhile. Poor little baby, she murmured. Her mind reeled, filled with unsubstantial pictures, with broken threads of unconnected thoughts. Now they were locked in each other's arms again. 
Quite apart from the sex in this, I think the Irish censors would also consider this blasphemous, given the place of blood in Catholic theology. Sophie's blood keeps his werewolf desires under control. Her blood pacifies the beast within him. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And those are the violent, sexually suggestive highlights of this book. I'm leaving out lots of long, drawn-out plot points because it's a bit dull. Now that's not to say the various subplots aren't interesting. Many of these subplots would still resonate with readers the lack of accountability and corruption in the Catholic Church, the flaws of mob justice, fake news, cosseted elites, the oppressed poor, political intrigue, mistreatment of the mentally ill, and so on. The church part is particularly interesting from an Irish perspective, given the reckoning with clerical crimes in the last few decades. When the priest rapes the servant girl at the start of the book, her employer confronts him but does little else. And this passage shows how clear-eyed Endor was about abuses of power. She made no complaint to the police, but went instead to the bishop and laid her case before him, with the result that Father Pittermont was called to account. The bishop, however, contented himself with transferring the culprit to another parish. There he had soon made a bad reputation for himself. The truth was that he could no longer hold himself in check. His temptations led him even further astray into the world of sin. To be honest, I did a double take when I read this. Written in 1934, Endor didn't know that moving sexual offenders around would become the standard response of the Catholic Church. This is just one example of how Endor debates institutional power in this horror novel, but I think you'll agree that it doesn't really add to the werewolf story. It's very observant, but it's not much good for a sense of looming dread or imminent terror. Maybe if the book had been a bit shorter at the beginning, the larger political points that he pulls in at the end would have been more powerful. When Parisian society collapses into violence because of an invading Prussian army, Endor talks about how difficult it is to tell the werewolf from everyone else. And this is from chapter 17. Bertrand, it now seemed to Amar, was but a mild case. What was a werewolf who had killed a couple of prostitutes, who had dug up a few corpses, 
compared with these bands of tigers slashing at each other with daily increasing ferocity. And they'll be worse, he said, and again he had that marvellous rising of the heart. Instead of thousands, future ages will kill millions. It will go on, the figures will rise and the process will accelerate. Hurrah for the race of werewolves. The werewolf ends up as a symbol of all that is wrong with humanity, and the author asks, aren't we all monsters? Simultaneously, Endor humanises Bertrand, the actual werewolf, by showing how he can restrain his desires. The cursed beast is tamed, while the seemingly normal humans revel in gratuitous violence. It's a cautionary tale about the difficulty of knowing who the monsters are. Hairy palms and a unibrow might indicate the beast within, but an ordinary appearance is no guarantee of normality. Unfortunately, all this political grandstanding gets in the way of the werewolf story. Horror stories are much more subversive if the author addresses political concerns obliquely. But Endor was a political radical with a fascinating biography. A Jewish child who was raised by Methodists and Catholics after his mother's suicide, Endor joined the Communist Party in the 1930s. His reasons why are interesting. He said, I was a communist only in the sense that I felt it would stop war and stop racial feelings, that it would help Jews and Negroes and so on. I wasn't a communist in wanting the Communist Party to run the world or in wanting the ideas of Karl Marx to govern everything. After this werewolf book, he wrote a novel about the Haitian Revolution that was so sympathetic to the enslaved people that he struggled to find a publisher. He was radical enough that he was on the list of Hollywood Reds who were to be tried before Congress by the House Committee on Un-American Activities. You're probably familiar with the term McCarthyism. Endor was caught up in the first Red Scare of this anti-communist era. In the end, he wasn't one of the Hollywood Ten who were brought before the House Committee, but he wasn't too thrilled about this. He apparently said, I feel I fail to make the grade as a human being and as a writer if I am not known as subversive to everything the investigating committee stands for. What an unapologetic tough nut he was. Endor was later blacklisted by Hollywood Studios along with hundreds of others. That his werewolf novel is stuffed with politics isn't entirely surprising when you read about his radical political views. The Werewolf of Paris sold very well in America and there were lots of reprints with wonderfully lurid pulp cover art. It also inspired a Hammer horror film, The Curse of the Werewolf, in 1961. The film left out all the politics of the book. The rapist father of the werewolf is a blind beggar, not a protected member of the Catholic Church. It also omitted most of the sexual violence and all the incest. In spite of this, it was very heavily cut by the UK film censors. Naturally, the Irish film censor banned The Curse of the Werewolf outright, but there was an active and important appeals board in the film censorship system. The board eventually gave the film an over-16 cert, with four cuts. So the Irish cinema-going public could watch a very watered-down film version of a book that remained banned until 1968. The ways of censorship really are twisted and peculiar. So would I recommend reading this book? 
It's a curious text with conflicting aims. I'm not sure historical fiction meets political manifesto is a great genre. I found that there was just too much polemic. The melodrama was definitely to my taste, and some of that is excellently done. It's not a wonderful, unputdownable read, but it is quirky, interesting, and sometimes quite gripping. If you like horror or gothic thrillers, do read it to see how the genre has evolved since 1933. And at last, it's time to play censorship bingo. Once again, the limitations of the bingo card are clear. I really do need a square for incest. It seems to be a reasonably common feature of literary narratives. So, from the first line. Feminism? No. No orgies, no drugs, no masturbation and no racism. There are no sex toys unless you count the use of the knife between Sophie and Bertrand. There is no menstruation. Sex work. Yes, there are many references to sex workers, a number of whom are killed by Bertrand. Extramarital pregnancy. Yes, the whole premise of the book is based on an extramarital pregnancy. Crime. Yes, there's murders, but also a lot of grave robbing and grave desecration. Politics. As I said, it's stuffed with politics. Endor questions the legitimacy of state power and the nature of democracy. Breasts. No actual explicit reference to breasts, funnily enough. Sexual assault. Yes, there are a number of rapes committed by the werewolf. Contraception. No, no contraception. There's no abortion. There is a brief glancing reference to infidelity. Oral sex. No, no oral sex references. Graphic violence. There is a lot of flesh ripping, so I think I will tick that box. Bestiality. This was interesting because technically Sophie and Bertrand only have sex while he's in human form. So I don't think I can actually tick that one. Genitalia. No, no genitalia. Blasphemy. The coincidence of consecration with the birth of a monster, the role of blood and sacrifice, Endor subverted Christian theology in a way that would have offended the very Catholic censors. The Werewolf of Paris scores 9 out of 25, which is a fairly high score. This book is respectably rude. But by the time it was legal to read it in 1968, it would have seemed very old-fashioned. Literature had become more frank in the 60s, and Endor's style was already deliberately archaic. He wrote the book in the style of a 19th century novel. At least Irish audiences got a thrill from the Hammer horror film, even if they never read the book. For the next episode, I'll be pivoting from werewolves in Paris to life in small-town Ireland. I'm reading The Pilgrimage by Irish author John Broderick. Published in 1961, it was banned that year. I'm not expecting clerical rapists or corpse-eating, but I'm hoping it will be an interesting read nonetheless. In the meantime, think blasphemous thoughts. Nobody can censor that but yourself. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.